You know what this is. A commercial? Right, and you know what that means. <gasps> Time for a snack? Wrong. I want you to do some heart-healthy exercise. Yes, you! Try some seated leg extensions right now. Just lift each leg up and extend it straight, one at a time, six to eight times. I can do that. Yes, you can. Remember, every commercial is a chance to sneak in heart-healthy activity. Visit findexerciseanywhere.com and speak with your doctor to learn more about the risks of heart failure. Hey, everybody. I'm going to try to spend a little bit of time today talking about the actual rise of anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish sentiment, not just around the country, but around the world, and how easy it is for many of us to say things, to do things that might actually be anti-Jewish and not even really understand it. I'm going to tell some of my story. I'm going to take a real risk here because... um, A lot of people are afraid to even speak openly about this issue because they are afraid they too will be labeled anti-Semitic. And I've seen that happen. And I want to talk about that as well. It's a complicated conversation, and I want to unpack and explain why. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The the, the Breakdown. The, 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 The Breakdown. I am not Jewish, and I'm not an expert in Jewish life and culture, and I'm not even an expert in fighting back against anti-Semitism, although I have fought back against it, even doing everything I can to track down neo-Nazis, even holding some accountable all the way through their jail sentences. But I'm I'm not an expert, not not even close. In fact, I'm the opposite of an expert. I'm I'm a novice. And I want to weigh in today in spite of my novice understanding of anti-Semitism, because I think it could be a very transparent conversation that a lot of people could relate to. First, I want to begin by saying uh, this, is, this is foolish to have to say. Um, and it even plays into weirdly anti-Semitic tropes that people think things like this, but no one forced me to say this. <laughs> this podcast is, and, and all the media that I'm a part of, uh, we own it. and. Um, There's nobody that could ever force me to say anything. Yet, there is this notion that Jewish power brokers are forcing people to say things that they say. I'll unpack that more in a second, but I want to start there by saying I want to talk about this because the rise of anti-Semitism is actually very, very real not only from the actual number of reported, verified hate crimes, but also physical attacks against Jewish people. And maybe you don't live in close proximity to Jewish people in in your city, in your town, in your county, maybe even in your state. But I live in Brooklyn, and I live almost right in the middle of one of the most heavily populated Jewish communities in America. 
and our community deals with not just anti-Semitism, but the community that I live in has had to deal with real struggles between African-Americans and, and Jewish members of our community for generations. And, and you may hear some wind blowing. I have a, I have, it's hot in our house. I have a window open today. But anti-Semitism is real. Neo-Nazis are real. And I want to unpack today some things that trouble me that I see, and all I can do is ask for forgiveness if I wade into something that I, I if I misspeak here, please uh, know that it's not my intention. I don't know that I met a Jewish man or woman until I was deep into my 30s. Real talk. I grew up in a rural town in Kentucky, Versailles, Kentucky. It looks like Versailles, but our town is country. I grew up in Versailles, Kentucky. And by and large, when I grew up in Versailles, diversity meant black and white. And I, I don't know that I knowingly uh, had any, any Jewish classmates. If I did, I didn't know it. Um, I knew nothing about Jewish life, Jewish culture, outside of maybe a few things I saw on television here and there. I then, so I, I was born and raised in Versailles, Kentucky. And then at the age of 17, in 1997, just to give you a timeline here, at the age of 17 in 1997, I left Versailles, Kentucky and moved to Atlanta, again, Atlanta in 97, which is different than Atlanta today. That's 23 years ago. And, and I went to Morehouse College, an all-black school for men, right in the middle of Atlanta's West End, one of the blackest, really one of the blackest communities in America, particularly at that time. There was little to no gentrification, and it was just a super black, almost, almost all-black community. And I went through those four years. Again, I, I don't know that I had any Jewish professors or staff. Again, if I did, I was unaware of it. We didn't talk about it. Um, and by the time I'm 21 and graduate, I, I'm teaching deep in one of the blackest communities of DeKalb County. Um, then after, I, and I, we lived in DeKalb County, my wife and I, we had a baby. We had Black doctors, uh, uh, black OBs, black black personal physicians, uh, black mayors. We lived in at the time again one of the blackest communities in all of Atlanta. We lived in Lithonia at the time, which was super super black, deep in South DeKalb County, and um, and I taught in an all literally an all black school. I don't believe there was one white child uh, at our school. And after I taught there, I then started, I took a job at a, a beautiful place called the Holistic Stress Control Institute, which was started by a brilliant woman named Jenny Trotter, who I admire so much after the Atlanta child murders. She started this wonderful organization. And for years, I taught in Atlanta's jails and prisons and youth detention centers. And many of them were also almost exclusively black. Our staff at Holistic Stress Control Institute 
I think was all black. And I, and I attended a church, obviously, where there were no Jewish people at our church. I, I was a pastor on the staff of a church. And uh, obviously, there were no Jewish people at the church. And my community, my group of friends, my life, my coworkers, my colleagues, for 30 years, uh, I lived in deeply black communities, had an all-black circle of friends and, and colleagues and classmates and partners and, 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 and business colleagues. And... Um, I had no interaction, uh, no deliberate, knowing interaction with Jewish people. I'm, by the time I'm 30 years, I'm 40 now. I'm 30 years old. So by the time I'm 30, and, and this continues really deep into my 30s, I'm not having, again, I'm in the deep south. I live in Atlanta until, until in my early 30s. Then we moved to Southern California and uh, again, I'm a part of groups and organizations and communities that had no Jewish people in the community that I was a part of. And I don't think I don't think it was until I moved to New York that I actually had everyday conversations and interactions with Jewish people. I don't know that it was really even until you know you know the Black Lives Matter movement begins in. 2013, 2014, 2015, I don't know if it was until I started campaigning for Bernie in 2015, at the point in which I'm 35 years old, that I not only began interacting with Bernie Sanders, who's obviously Jewish, but many other members of his staff who were Jewish. And between working on Bernie's campaign and living in, in and around uh expressed Jewish communities, and then finally forming lifelong friendships with Jewish men and women, not only in New York, but through Bernie's campaign and other places, I was probably, again, 35 years old, a fully formed adult, until I started having actual relationships, friendships with Jewish people. I grew up in rural Kentucky, went to an all-black college, lived in super black communities in Atlanta. And I say that as somebody with, you know, multiple college degrees and all of that, that my IQ on Jewish issues, on, on Jewish life and culture, on anti-Semitism was super low. And I need for any, any Jewish sisters and brothers who are listening to this, um, I don't say this as an excuse. I say it to help illuminate something. I need you to understand, I'm speaking directly to my Jewish sisters and brothers, that I, I was 35 years old until I even had my first knowing friendships with Jewish people. Jewish people were just not in the communities and cultures and neighborhoods and, and circles that I was a part of. And what that meant was I'm deep into my 30s before I really understand what Jewish stereotypes are. I'm still learning. Um, I, you know, there are tropes, which are like um, uh, just 
negative stereotypes about Jewish people that I'm still just now learning and understanding. And that's because it was, I was 35 years into life before anybody even said like, hey, this, this is anti-Semitic and that is anti-Semitic. And, and hey, Sean, did you know that this thing that people are saying about Jewish people, it's actually been a, a horrible stereotype about Jews for 100 years? I had no idea. And what I'm saying is, how would I know? And social media helps that in some ways. But if you're not in relationship and connection, and and particularly if you don't have Jewish friends who can pull you aside and say, Sean, I think you probably want to, the thing you said, you should probably have said it this way or that way, or you should tweak it this way. Even over this past week, uh, we have Jewish members of the North Star, of the Breakdown, uh, uh, Jewish donors of to the Grassroots Law Project, reached out and said, hey, Sean, had you thought about it from this position or that position? Saying it in love because these are my friends. And part of why I wanted us to talk today is I see a lot of men and women saying things that they earnestly do not understand are anti-Semitic. And I see the same thing happen a lot. Now, a lot of people say racist, overtly racist stuff about black people all the time, and they knew it was overtly racist when they said it. Okay, so I'm not excusing that. But it's easy if you are not honestly familiar with some racial stereotypes, like, um, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it, might, it may have been some, someone one time kept talking about how, how articulate Barack Obama was. <laughs> and, uh, and they didn't understand why that was offensive and the history of, of that. Like, what they thought they were saying was that, like, wow, the guy is a brilliant speaker, has, has a great language, but, but their use of the word articulate has history, and, and a very negative history. And, and it was seen as condescending to say that. And if you didn't know that history, be like, what? Uh, I, I actually was trying to give the man a compliment. And a lot of times we can walk into racist language, racist thoughts. Please, if you have not already, read the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, it, it will let you know that all of us have the capacity for bigoted language, bigoted thoughts, and, and bigoted actions. Now, uh, obviously, there are people who say, Sean, I can't be racist because there's this theory. Sean, black people can't be racist because black people don't have power, and you have to have power to be racist. I generally reject that theory, and we could talk about that on another day. Um, but all of us can use offensive language. All of us can you have the capacity to use bigoted words, uh, offensive words, words that hurt and harm. Um, and all of us can take bigoted actions, um, violent actions. If, if you are from 
any ethnic group and you cause harm to someone else from a different ethnic group, that's a bigoted action. And you and, and the ethnic group you're part of having power or not power doesn't mean it's not bigoted. If it was rooted in a bigoted way of thinking, it's bigoted. But this conversation around Nick Cannon, around Ice Cube, uh, I know both of them, around, around Diddy, who I would call a friend. Uh, I would call Nick Cannon my friend as well. Uh, I've loved Ice Cube and his music for, for a very long time since I was a teenage boy, but I only know him passingly. We've interacted some on social media, but Nick and I have talked before. In fact, one of his dear friends who just passed away yesterday, uh, who was shot by police when, when um, his friend was shot almost a year ago, but survived on life support for nearly a year uh, when his family called 911 for support during a mental health crisis, <clears throat> something we talk about here on the show all the time. And Nick and I talked about that when his friend was shot and killed. Um, Diddy, as you may know, endorsed my book, Make Change. He has been super supportive of me through many ups and downs, highs and lows, and, and I appreciate it. There's been a lot of criticism of things that those three people have said uh, and others. And what I need us to understand is that you, you saying, hey, what I'm saying, let's, for a moment, um, let's not even use the phrase anti-Semitic because some people have kind of a weird history even with that phrase. So let's use the phrase anti-Jewish. So if you aren't aware that the thing you said is anti-Jewish, that doesn't mean it's not anti-Jewish. It just means you're not aware of it. And what I often see is people saying, well, I didn't mean for it to be anti-Jewish. Or I wasn't, you know, I, I love all people. And that may be true as well. But just because you don't understand that something is offensive to any group of people, to Latinos, to Jewish people, it, just because you don't understand that something is offensive to women doesn't mean that it's not actually offensive to women. That's not how it works. So we don't get to choose. So white people may say, well, listen, I, I did not mean to be offensive. And, and I can accept that. But not meaning something to be offensive doesn't mean that it is not offensive. And so I see a lot of people saying things that are anti-Jewish, honestly not understanding that they're anti-Jewish. Now, I know uh, that if you're listening to this and you are Jewish, that maybe that's offensive. But having talked to people who actually said things that were problematic it was clear to me that they did not understand the history of the problematic language. And, and again, again, often unless somebody schools you on that, unless somebody says, well, actually, did you know that this image has its history in this form of discrimination and was used to do A, B, C, and D, often until you school somebody on it, they might not know. Again, 
one of the things that is regularly anti-Semitic is talking about how good Jews are with money. Again, some Jewish people are great with money, just like some part of every ethnic group is great with money. It may even be true that some Jewish people are phenomenal with money in a way in ways A, B, C, and D. But to say that Jews are good with money, well, no. Some Jews aren't good with money. Some Jews are horrible with money. Some Jews are just really, really decent with money. In my city of, of New York, we have Jewish families who, who are in deep poverty. And that may surprise people because you don't live in a place where you will see Jewish people on, on public transportation, Jewish people uh, on food stamps and public assistance. That um, there is a wide variety of ways that Jewish people interact with money. Well, that trope of Jews are good with money is literally very connected, like a straight line connection all the way to the Holocaust, which was basically that Jewish people are so phenomenal with money that they are taking money that belongs to me. Uh, they are an outsized portion of the economy, and if not for them, that money would belong to us. You understand how that's dangerous? It's a very dangerous thought. It's, it is in line with the modern-day Trumpism thought of um, Latinos and immigrants are taking jobs that were actually jobs meant for white people. A complete falsehood, number one, because so many of the jobs taken by Im immigrants in general are jobs that were abandoned by white people. And literally, if you removed all of those jobs that immigrants hold, white people generally would not be the ones filling a complete fabrication. But advancing it, advancing that trope that those jobs that immigrants are taking belong to you causes people to have a deep resentment of immigrants and particularly immigrants of color, doubly so with Latino immigrants. And so tropes about, about money and stereotypes about money, they're problematic. And listen, all Jewish people, just like all people from any, any ethnic group or religious group or background, are not good. All people from any ethnic group or religious group are not evil. But when we begin to frame an ethnic group, as, a whole ethnic group, as good or evil or as, uh, as a threat, again, the reason people fight back against that so harshly is because those types of reducing an ethnic group to being a threat literally can cost lives. <clears throat> Do you understand what I'm saying? And has cost lives before. Now, I've had several of my closest Jewish friends 
ask why they don't see more black people fighting against anti-Semitism. And I want to close by talking about that for a few minutes. And again, apologies if how I approach it uh, lacks the nuance and sophistication that you think the issue deserves. I just want to give my honest thoughts. Right now, I'm talking about on this day in mid-July of 2020, African Americans in particular feel like our house is on fire. Not only are we experiencing the horrible issue of police violence and with cases like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor who were murdered at the hands of police, but we're also experiencing horrible modern-day lynchings, which is exactly what happened to Ahmaud Aubrey. Not only are we experiencing racial injustice and police violence and the continued threat of other forms of racism and bigotry, be it the, the, the new wave of white women and white people calling the police on black people and being caught doing so on cell phones that we are, you know, videos we are posting all over the place. So not only are black folk dealing with that, but African-Americans have been walloped by the coronavirus pandemic. I know every single funeral and eulogy that I oversaw over the past few months was from a black family who lost their mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, best friends, classmates. No community has been hit harder by the coronavirus pandemic than the black community. And it has, in certain cities, including throughout New York and Detroit and New Orleans and throughout the Deep South now, um, no community has been consistently hit harder. We're now nearing 140,000 lives lost, and tens of thousands of those lives are from black families who lost their most cherished loved ones. And on top of that, African Americans are dealing now with record setting unemployment. Um, as nearly 40 million jobs, over 40 million jobs now, have been lost. Again, disproportionate. Uh, the number of African Americans who've lost their jobs is disproportionate to the population. And on top of that, African Americans who have not lost their jobs are often essential workers who are forced to provide for their families by literally going to work in the face of the pandemic each and every single day. Not able, again, uh, compared to white Americans, black Americans have not had the privilege of working from home at anywhere near the rate of their white counterparts. And so throughout the entire pandemic, Black folk have been on the front lines at hospitals, not only doctors and nurses, but um, uh, custodians, uh, front desk security workers, and everything in between. The same is true for postal workers, for grocery workers, and every other profession you could think of. And in dealing with 
the racial injustice of cases like Ahmaud Aubrey, the police violence from Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and so many other names and cases, and the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic and unemployment, and, and on top of that, violence in our own communities that, that is taking the lives of children. You may have seen a one-year-old child was shot and killed in Brooklyn, where I live, a one-year-old baby. And all of that is so overwhelming. And this is the best illustration I have. Can you imagine, I'm asking you, the listener specifically, imagine you are in your house and it is literally on fire. Imagine the fire is a a raging inferno and it is ripping through your house. And imagine your loved ones are still in the house. Never mind your, your treasures and possessions, but your loved ones are still there. Imagine being asked to care about almost anything other than that fire. Imagine if your house is on fire and you are in the house and your loved ones are in the house, spread all over, and it looks like you might not even get out. Imagine somebody asking you in that moment to care about homelessness, to care about cancer, to care about anything, to care about the environment. In that moment, when your house is literally burning down all around you, please understand that our capacity right now to care deeply about anything and anybody else is overwhelmed. Listen, I am all for being intersectional. I am all for us caring, and I care deeply about all people and all the struggles and issues and forms of bigotry and racism and discrimination, issues of the environment, issues of poverty, issues of health care. I care deeply about all of that. But there are moments, imagine you're having a heart attack, and during your heart attack, somebody puts a mic in front of your face while you're suffering through your heart attack and asks you to care about um, uh, refugees somewhere in the world. Like, of course, refugees, like, really, that issue matters. But imagine you being asked to care about it in the middle of your heart attack. And I say that to say that some people are gifted and skilled at finding ways to care about multiple causes and communities, even when their house is on fire. And God bless those people. I don't say that facetiously. I mean it. God bless you. Other people, when they're having a heart attack, when their house is on fire, so to speak, all they can think about is saving the people immediately around them. And so I need you to understand that right now, black people, black people are at capacity, are over capacity. Every single day I have black folk who reach out to me and say, 
that they're on the verge of, of, a, of a breakdown, a nervous breakdown, that they're overwhelmed. We are dealing also with the crisis of mental health and even of suicide in our own communities. People are overwhelmed. And all I'm asking you is to understand that it's not that your problem doesn't matter. It does. It matters deeply. But I'm asking you to understand that it can be hard to have sympathy even when it's deserved. It can be hard to be sympathetic when your house is on fire. It can be hard to be sympathetic when you or the person next to you is having a heart attack. It can be hard to be sympathetic for the person across the country or down the street or somewhere on the Internet. Just understand, people right now are being pushed way past their limits. And we have to find our way through that. We have to still find a way. It's not easy. I don't have the answers. But I just wanted to weigh in and share some thoughts, okay? I will still, as best as I can, speak out against anti-Semitism and bigotry and anti-Jewish sentiments in every way that I can. I'll continue to try to use my skills uh, of tracking down neo-Nazis and others who cause actual physical harm and violence to people. And I will continue to try to be a good listener. But all I ask is that you also understand that People have a finite ability to process, but only so much pain, so much trauma, and actively fight for other people at the same time. Again, I'm sorry if you feel in this conversation that there's something missing. I'm sorry if my words were not as sharp or or as acute as maybe they needed to be. This is my best in this moment as well. I too am pushed up against the wall and doing my very best. My family and I right now are literally living in a safe house as we process death threats and other things against us. So understand we're all doing our best. Take care, everybody. Break it down. Hey, my name is Brandon Janice, and I'm the host of Sick Empire, a brand new podcast brought to you by the North Star. On Sick Empire, I interview New Yorkers who, in different ways, fight on the front lines for change in the city during the coronavirus pandemic. Please listen to hear a unique mix of stories from essential workers, small business owners, artists, and elected officials who are all experiencing the chaos of COVID in their own ways. Listen to Sick Empire on all streaming platforms. And you can support the show and any of our other podcasts by heading over to thenorthstar.com and becoming a member. Sick Empire. Sick Empire.
control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed.